Thanks, Ruth. We'll be right back after this message. Keep it locked here on WNLC. That's good. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope everyone is uh, doing well. Uh, For many people, this is the season to set new goals. The resetting of the clock gives us a sense of a new beginning of sorts. In the Derby City, many look to recover from the holiday stuffing by targeting a date in April when the Louisville Marathon is run. Whether you choose a full marathon or a half, much training is needed. And fortunately, leading up to this monumental task, there are three races called the Derby City Triple Crown that will get you back into shape. They include a 5K, a 10K, and a 15K race. The idea behind these races is that they're supposed to help runners get back into shape so that they can complete the marathon. Most participants aren't looking to win the race, but to uh, become healthier and recover some of uh, their clothes that were sacrificed at the dinner table. (laughs) I've been thinking about New Year's resolutions, about setting new goals in general and starting new habits. Have you guys? Uh, Maybe for you it's a new diet a workout plan, a reading goal, something that you've set your mind to and said, this year I'm going to do X. Normally these goals aren't flippant decisions that we make. We've put some thought into it before we make the change or decide to create a new habit. If you're anything like me, you you get really excited about this new goal or or, uh, thing that you're about to start. And before you even begin, you must go out and purchase all of the essentials to make this goal a reality. For some of you, it's that new bicycle that will help you lose weight. Others need a date book. That way you'll finally be organized and on top of it. That's for my wife. Um, (laughs) Others cut up credit cards and head to their local bank to get envelopes because Dave Ramsey said so. And uh, if you're me, you can't start anything new without first buying a new pair of shoes. Mavis knows what I'm talking about, right? I then attempt to justify my purchase by telling my wife all of the reasons why I've got to have these new shoes. Sarah, I need these new shoes. Listen, they're going to make me faster. I'm going to be able to jump higher. Uh, Look at my old shoes. I know we bought them a month ago, but they're practically worn out. Um, And they make my knees hurt. So I really, that's why I really need these new ones. Uh, Do you really want my knees to hurt? And after guilt tripping my wife into the purchase of the essentials, then I'm set. Um, New shoes for me, new planner or whatever contraption for you, then you're set. With determination and zeal that's frankly sometimes a little scary, days turn into weeks, weeks into months, and months into many months. Who knows how long your new fire will last. But for most Americans, according to Forbes.com, only 25% of people who set a new goal at the beginning of the year make it through the first month and only 8% complete the entire year. Those are grim statistics for any of us who have set our minds and decided to start a new goal. It's like as time passes, the drive and desire that we once had uh, that drove us to wake up early to eat this and not that diminishes. The delight and passion that we once had is gone. And you might even get to a place where everything seems more attractive than that goal or habit you had your heart set on. If we're honest with ourselves, and that's a good thing to do, uh, the same can be true for our spiritual life. When Jesus is revealed to us, our eyes are opened to the truth and our need of a Savior and all that Jesus accomplished at the cross. 
we're undone by his grace and overwhelmed by, with gratitude, we start running. We let go of all that we once held at all to follow him. Passion for Jesus drives us to tell others. We start, we move from living for ourselves to living for him. Then for some of us, or maybe not you, but at least for me, there have been times, even recent times, when the passion that once fueled every area of my life is all but dried up. I'm more captivated by the newest series on Netflix, scrolling on social media, or, or looking, on, looking at an article, um, and I neglect my time with the Lord. The focus shifts, and I begin to look to other things to fill what can only be filled by Him. What I've realized is, is starting something new is usually not the hard part. The hard part is having endurance and perseverance to push through the setbacks, to ride out the hard times, to press in when everything in you is saying quit. But there's hope. And today, I believe that we're going to find in the scriptures what God has to say about endurance and perseverance. Because we have been born again to run. That means that everything that we need for this race, God has provided it for us and he's made available to us. So if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The big idea for this message is Jesus' example empowers us as we run the race that he set before us. We'll start reading in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. God, we come before you now, and, and we just give you this time, God. God, that you would open up your word, open up our eyes to you. God, that you have a word specifically for each and every person in here, God. I pray that you would tune our ears into what you're saying, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. So before we get into... Um, the details of the text. Let's look at the context of the letter. There are two things that we don't know for certain when it comes to the book or the letter to the Hebrews. First, we don't know who the author is, and we don't know specifically who the audience he's writing to. But we can, um, we don't, we do know things based on the book itself. We do know that um, based on evidence found within it, that the writer was from a Jewish background, and the people that he was writing to were of Jewish descent. Why? Because throughout the letter, there are over 30, or there are 35 direct quotations from the Old Testament uh, in, in the letter to the Hebrews. This is why uh, the name Hebrews is given to the letter. Uh, we also know uh, from the evidence found in chapter 10 that the audience was facing persecution and imprisonment because of their faith in Jesus. Starting at verse 32, we'll read, But recall the former days when you were enlightened, when you believed in Jesus. You endured a hard struggle and suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So this tells us that at the beginning of their walk, they faced trials and persecution with joy. But as time has gone on, their passion is gone. Their zeal for the Lord is gone. Their drive, the endurance needed to sustain the marathon run of faith, um, they don't have it. Uh, the immediate context for our passage is a continuation of chapter 11. Pastor Carroll talked about this last week. The heroes of the faith. That's what the chapter is known, known for. Um, it's one of the most famous sections in all of the New Testament. Uh, we see here that uh, salvation comes by faith alone. And those that are God's walk by faith as well. We're reminded of the heroes of the faith. Ordinary people who believed God despite challenging circumstances, and were found righteous because of that faith. Reminding the audience then and us now that God uses ordinary people to accomplish great things when they put their faith in God. So let's look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the image associated with this verse is one of a stadium. You're in the starting blocks of the race. You look up into the stands, you see the heroes of the faith, Abraham, Noah, and Rahab, sitting down, looking down at you, they got popcorn in hand, and they're cheering you on as you start your race. They, along with the other saints of old, faithful members of your own family, watch and cheer you on as you run. And this is a popular view, but it's not backed up by scripture. So the way that we can see this is, uh, we are in a stadium of life running the race that Jesus has set before us. But instead of us seeing these faithful ones as looking at us, we're looking to them, remembering the example that they set, motivating us and reminding us that God is not a respecter of persons. Amen. They believed God and took him at his word to them. And we can too. Yeah. They weren't endowed with more strength than we have. We have everything that we need to accomplish what God has called us to. Something else that I think is really important for us to grasp when it comes to this list of faithful people, it is, it is very inclusive. The list includes elderly, young, men, women, different ethnicities and backgrounds, prostitutes, and kings. Not only that, but when you include all the faithful people who have passed since Christ's resurrection, you can see that uh, you can see a history of people who believed God and ran their faith, faith race. Let's look at a few together. Rahab, a prostitute, believed that God had given the land to the Israelites when she came into contact with two Israeli spies. She hid them and helped them escape from the town of Jericho, saving her life and the life of her family. Proving that, and her name is included in the genealogy of Jesus, which is crazy. Proving that God can transform your life no matter where you come from or what you've done. In 1554, Lady Jane Grey, a 17-year-old, was beheaded by Queen Mary. Why? Because she refused to agree with the Catholic Church's teachings that salvation came by faith and works. Mary was a Protestant and believed that salvation was by faith alone. Just before she was executed, she said this, I do look to be saved by no other means, but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Showing us that running the faith race isn't something that you do when you get older, when, you're, when there's no options left. This race doesn't have an age requirement. If you're called, 
He's calling you to run. In 1754, two Moravian missionaries boarded a ship and set sail for the West Indies. They had heard of the plight of Africans who were taken from their home and forced into slavery. Knowing that the island had never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, they knew that God was calling them. They attempted to sell themselves into slavery to reach the island, but no one would purchase them because they were white. So they decided to go as skilled laborers, not knowing if they would ever return again. They left to the cries of their family and friends, begging them to reconsider. Showing us that God might call us to things that the people around us don't understand. They left to the cries of their family, but that did not dissuade them. I think it's important to make a distinction here between comparing and emulating. We're not looking to compare our race to their race, to see how we stack up against our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. That would be like you training for a marathon. You've trained, you've carbo-loaded, you are ready for this marathon. You show up on Saturday morning and you're going to run. And then you see me. And I did not train for a marathon. I just woke up, rolled over, looked at my wife and said, I think I'm going to run a marathon today. And you deciding in your heart that instead of running the race that you have trained for, instead of running for the goal that you've set, you're going to run to beat me. If we compare our race to those around us, we will never run the race that God has for us. To emulate means to imitate. We want to emulate characteristics that we see in the people around us, in the heroes of the faith. Faithfulness, humility, compassion, zeal for the Lord. These are all characteristics that will translate to any race and will help you run yours. Emulation, awesome. Comparison will keep you from the race that God has for you. As we look to these faithful ones, this motivates us. And, and we're, we're encouraged to run. And as we run, there will be things that are revealed that are holding back our stride. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Encumbrance here is just a word from the Greek. It means weight, bulk, or mass. Uh, this connects directly to the image given of, of running in a race. The audience would be super familiar with the Greek games uh, where runners ran with little to nothing on. And the same is still true today. When's the last time you saw someone out for a run wearing this? You, ha- you haven't. And as funny as that may be, that's exactly what we like, look like when we try to run with something that God is telling us to lay down. You see these weights, these encumbrances, they aren't morally wrong things. They aren't sins. Because the writer clearly makes a distinction here between encumbrances and sins. They are things that we carry with us that the Lord is asking us to throw off. Because they impede our race and prevent us from running effectively. If you've ever run before, you will know that running is an intense activity requiring your entire body. Carrying extra weight to do something that's already difficult will impede your race and will hinder you. John Piper, when speaking of this verse, said, and I quote, Not just sins. Don't just lay aside sins to run this race. Lay aside every other weight that gets in your way. 
So for us, the question should not be, is it a sin to do this? Is it a sin to drink this drink? Is it a sin to watch this show? The question we should ask ourselves is, does it help me run? Does it help me run? Right now, yeah, you can clap for that. That's good. That's a good word. That's a good word. I'm going to get a drink while y'all clap. All right. I needed a drink for a while. Uh, Right now, I just want to take a minute and pray because God um, is the revealer of weights. And we could go through a long list of weights and be like, hey, it might be this, it might be that, but that's just a waste of time because God will reveal those. And sometimes we don't, most of the time we don't know we're carrying. It's like we're so used to it, we don't even realize it. So will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this opportunity to run the race that you've called us to. And God, right now, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that everyone who wants to know if they're carrying something, God, that you would reveal it right now in Jesus' name. Father, Father, regardless of the social impact that this throwing this thing off might make, God, I pray that they would do it. And Father, that you would empower them too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. <clears throat> and then the writer goes on to say, and the in the sin which so easily entangles us. Sin is so seductive many times because of compromise. We don't even realize that we're entangled till we're stuck. Wondering, how did I get here? It seemed like the right thing to do. I thought I was okay, but now I'm stuck. The writer here is speaking to the Jewish audience and is specifically talking about the sin of unbelief. You see, the audience grew up in Judaism, and they were familiar with the workspace system, uh, believing that they could be justified and made right in the sight of God by their own good works. And uh, let's face it, for first century Jews, surrounded by these Jewish customs, surrounded by the temple, uh, this would be easy to fall back into their old lifestyle. Their entire culture were the, were the feasts, were the, were the ritual cleansings, were the keeping of the laws. And it would be easy for them to fall back into that same old thinking, thinking that they could make themselves right in the sight of God. And forgetting that they were made right by Christ's work at the cross, period. Over the past uh, few months as I've prepared this message uh, and understanded, our understanding, as I've understanded, working on the, as I've... (laughs) As I've worked on the text and, and tried to understand what the Lord is saying, the Lord has used it to work on me. In my life, the sin is not tied to me thinking that I could uh, work my way to right standing with God. The sin of unbelief manifests itself in my life by not trusting God when it comes to the way that I eat. Since I can remember, I've always had a different relationship with food. Uh, from overeating as a child because I was good at it to uh, <laughs> I, I was always like a part of the clean plate club. And I would even help my brother who's here. I would finish his plate so that he could get a sucker too. So you're, you're welcome, Karsten. To finding comfort in it as an adult. I used food to cope when life got hard or when it, I wanted to let loose and, and celebrate. Uh, I was overweight growing up and at my heaviest I weighed 300 pounds. Uh, Throughout the years, through diet and exercise, 
I've, I've managed my weight and from the outside appeared to be the model of health. But looks can be, looks can be deceiving. Sin is so seductive. As long as I was in control, I could carry it. I could manage it. I couldn't trust God with it. If I gave it back to him, I would become the old me, the 300-pound me. I was entangled, trapped in my unbelief. God wasn't in control and neither was I. Food was. This past December, after battling eating disorders for over 17 years, my sin was revealed to me. And I decided to lay it down. I don't stand here as someone who has it all figured out. But as a child of God who stopped thinking he can manage areas of his life by himself. And believed his heavenly father knew best. What about you? Where are you not believing the Lord? Where are you not trusting him? Whatever the sin. No matter how long you've been trapped by its entanglements. No matter how many times you've tried to quit, to do better, whatever it is, today you can be set free from its grips. Why do we need to get rid of these encumbrances and these weights? Let's look back at the text. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. We do it so that we can run with endurance. Like we saw before, we don't show up to a race dressed like a gorilla. But even if you did, you wouldn't be able to run for long, tied down by the weights and the entanglements of sin. Unlike the Louisville Marathon, where only a select few have their eyes on winning the race, as believers, we're not called just to finish the race. We're not, we're not talking about participation trophies. We're called to win. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. When I read this, I I hear and I, I feel the word purpose. More specifically, purposeful training. Last June, Anthony Joshua, the heavyweight champion of the world, lost his heavyweight title. What did he do? He went back to work and set up a rematch with the fighter that had just beat him. In the months leading up to that rematch, he enlisted the help of a sparring partner from Louisville, Kentucky. You see, sparring is a crucial part to any uh, boxing match as you prepare for it. Many times boxers will look uh, to a fighter that resembles uh, the fighting style of their next opponent. And that's exactly what Anthony Joshua saw in Louisville's own Tim Moten. Tim was the same size and had a similar fighting style as Joshua's opponent, and this allowed him to fine-tune his training and go up against a fighter that resembled the one he would soon face. On December 7th of last month, 
Anthony Joshua regained his lost title and for the second time in his storied career became heavyweight champion of the world. Much of the credit due to Tim and the team that surrounded him. We too need to enlist the help of others as we run. You may look different in terms of what the Lord has called you to, but we're still in this faith race together. Being a part of a group helps us stay motivated and helps bring purpose to our day-to-day runs. Life groups here at the church, one-on-one discipleships, and other small groups are essential for our race. God designed us for community, and he uses people to encourage us, to challenge us, to challenge us to press into what he is saying. I want to encourage you, as we start this new year, to reach out to the people around you. Find a life group. Invest in discipleship relationships. You can't run alone. So let's take a minute to recap. First, we discussed the importance of of looking to the examples of faithful ones throughout the history who have run a faith-filled race. Remembering their testimonies encourages us to press into what God is calling us to. Next, we discuss the importance of throwing off weights and sins that hinder our stride as we race towards the prize and how important it is to enlist the help of others because you were born to run and it's impossible to run alone. Now we're going to turn our attention to the author and perfecter of faith. Let's look at verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you've ever run before, you'll know one of the keys to running is where you set your eyes. In an article in the Atlantic magazine titled Running Faster by Focusing on the Finish Line, the author discusses a study that shows people who look at an object in the distance go faster and feel less exertion than those who let their attention wander. And that is so true for us as as Christians. Uh, Let's look at how the Amplified Version says it. Uh, Looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith. As we run, we don't look at our feet. We don't look at at the people around us. We look to him. I've never run hurdles before, but I've been told that when you do, you never look at the hurdle. Because when you look at the hurdle, you end up in the hurdle. And you'll end up underneath it. So that's why you don't look at the hurdle. When when you run hurdles, you look over the hurdle. You look beyond it. It's not that the hurdle's not there. The hurdle's still there. But you look beyond it. Now I've lost my spot. The writer of Hebrews is telling the people, I know you're facing persecution. I know you're going through difficulties because you've decided to follow Jesus. But get your eyes off the temporary and fix them on the internal. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. For us, the same is true. Most of us aren't facing the same persecution that the first century Christians faced. Forfeit of property, death. But the Bible does say, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're running, 
you will be persecuted. You will face trials of various kinds. The difficulties are there and are a reality. But as Christians, we're called to not fix our eyes on them. We're called to fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the author. He's the leader of our faith. He blazed a trail for us, displaying for us perfect obedience, showing us what a relationship with the Father looks like. He didn't live a segmented life, but a life infused by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our ultimate example finished his race at the cross. In the most intense, the most trying time in Jesus' life, what do we see him do? We see him trust his Father. We see him endure the cross. We see him despise the shame associated with it. Sometimes it's hard for us to uh, imagine the shame associated with the cross. Crosses are fashionable today. Uh, T-shirts, bumper stickers, you name it, it's on it. It's even right in front of me here, Uh, which is great. But the shame of the cross can be lost on us. The cross was perfected by the Romans to maximize pain, to torture its victims. It not only brought shame on you, but on your entire family. You were displayed for everyone to see, left naked to hang. But our Savior went to the cross, not merely ignoring the shame of the cross. He knew what awaited him. He was well aware of what he was about to face. But in the darkest moment of his life, he kept running. Why? The Bible tells us, for the joy set before him. What was that joy? What joy would be so powerful as to outweigh the torture, the pain, and the humility of the cross. You. You were the joy that was set before him. You are his reward. He saw over the cross and fixed his eyes on joy. He fixed his eyes on you. He fixed his eyes on the the idea that He could bring you out from under this curse of sin and bring you into fellowship with with the Heavenly Father. He saw past it all and saw his reward. He said, Patrick's worth it. I'll go to the cross for Patrick. Jamie's worth it. I'll go to the cross for Jamie. If I can spend the rest of eternity with Jenny, I'll I'll go to the cross. It's worth it. And now as sons and daughters of the living God, bought and paid for by our Lord and Savior, we have the same opportunity to follow his example. We get to run with all that's within us, looking past all that seeks to distract our attention and fix our eyes on our king and our source of endurance. He never promised us an easy race, but he did promise us he'd never leave us alone in it. May the cry of our hearts be the same as the Moravian missionaries, as they set sail to reach the slaves of the West Indies, they raised their hands and yelled back at their distraught family and friends, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering.